This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. Want to keep your house? Support your kids? Stay alive? Some advice, never stop working. Marjorie Nicolau reads The End of Retirement. This is an article titled The End of Retirement by Catherine Bradbury. I'm standing on my back stoop, looking out at the 80 or so people jammed into the backyard for my retirement party. They're here to celebrate my 40 years in journalism. There's the gang from Domino Fashion Magazine, where I got my start in the can't-spend-enough, cocaine-stoked 80s. The Globe and Mail crew, from the ambitious middle of my career, hang out with colleagues from McLean's, the Toronto Star and Metro. I moved around a lot. The CBC news crowd are huddled to my left, protecting themselves and their fat budgets from the circling sharks of underfunded journalism. My final job was with them, We were together for the COVID-19 shutdown, the murder of George Floyd, the storming of the Capitol in Washington, D.C., the invasion of Ukraine, nuclear threats from Russia, and blazing forests and atmospheric rivers at home. It was the most punishing news cycle of my career. I wasn't sad to be leaving. Just beyond the guests, and beyond the hornbeam trees where I've strung fairy lights for the party, I think I can see my future. The grind of work is finally over. My retirement dream queued up. April in Paris. Reading by the sea. Spanish lessons in Antigua so I can better speak to my grandson. I'll be playing with him too in the open-ended days my children rarely knew with me. I'm not saying I deserve a life of ease, but I worked hard to earn my retirement, dropping great chunks of my salary into company and government pension plans throughout those 40 years. It's time for the famous social contract to hold up its end of the bargain and take care of me, the way it did for my father before me, to deliver on the idea that retirement is my right after a life of work and the promise that I will have the time and means to enjoy it. Except none of that happened. The year since my retirement party has not been a dreamy passage to a welcoming future, but a nerve-shattering trip into the unknown. My debt is swelling like a broken ankle, My hard-won savings may or may not be sucked into the vortex of an international market collapse. Can I keep my house? Who knows? The macroeconomy is messing with my microeconomy. The future keeps shape-shifting, and none of the careful planning I put into my retirement is going to change that. When I left my last job, I felt sad for friends determined to keep working to 70 and beyond. How eccentric they seemed. Now, I repeat the same two words whenever I see them. Don't retire! Roughly a thousand people are retiring each day in Canada, Fraser Stark, president of the Longevity Pension Fund at Purpose Investments in Toronto, told me. That's about a million currently retired. Ours is the largest generation in Canadian history to move into retirement, and we tend to get distracted by the sheer number of us snailing through the system like a row of snowplows on a four-lane highway. But the bigger issue with retiring at 64, which is the average age Canadians leave the workforce, can be summed up in one increasingly terrifying word, 
longevity. Anyone retiring in Canada right now can expect to live at least until 80, women until 84. But those numbers are averaged out. When I began to discuss retirement with my financial planner in early 2022, he put my life expectancy at 94. Why, thank you, I said. I do try to keep fit. No, said Benjamin Klein, senior portfolio manager at Baskin Wealth Management. Life expectancy is not randomized. When we factor in your gender, genetics, access to good health care, education and lifestyle, that's how long you'll live. Stark doubled down on that number. The oldest Canadian is believed to have died at age 117. If you want to accurately plan, that's the number you need to write down, he said. Retire at 64 and you could have 50 more years to save for. Every generation lives longer than the one that came before. Nothing new there. But a 50-year span between the end of work and the end of life is a long way from the original purpose of paid retirement, which was a very short bridge of financial support, or no bridge at all. Otto von Bismarck has been trotted out and smacked down many times for his invention of paid retirement. In 1881, he proposed that all Germans had the right to government support after a life of work, with payments kicking in at age 70 except that life expectancy in the 1880s was about 40 years. When Canada created its own pension plan in 1965 to address the growing poverty of retired Canadians 65 and older, thank you Lester B. Pearson for my monthly CPP check, the life expectancy of men who made up the bulk of the workforce was 68. By 2019, 37% of Canadians 55 and older were concerned they wouldn't have enough savings when they retired, according to the Canadian Financial Capability Survey. And that was before the rush of retirements during COVID, a third of them earlier than planned. Lockdown's low interest rates and curtailed spending gave false hopes to retirees such as me, those unspending days when the money in my bank account seemed to self-spawn like guppies. And also, like guppies, its lifespan was short-lived. There's not enough gold in my golden years, I told Klein a few months into my retirement. I could feel him smiling sympathetically across the phone line. You're not alone, he assured me. Rents, mortgages, groceries, Canadians are suffering. I described the little house graphic on my gas bill. The house keeps getting smaller thanks to my ferocious vigilance, but the bill keeps getting bigger thanks to the cost of gas. And that's just standard housekeeping throw in the unexpected, like a family wedding or grown kids moving back home, and many retired people land somewhere on the spectrum of panic, Klein said. According to BMO's 13th Annual Retirement Study, released this past February, Canadians believe they need $1.7 million to retire, up 20% from 2020 when they put it at $1.4 million. The number is not statistically supported, but it's a good gauge of people's emotional preparedness for retirement and how anxious they feel. That third of Canadians who were worried in 2019 that they wouldn't have enough money has jumped to more than half of us in 2023, and 74% are concerned about inflation and rising prices. Fewer than a quarter of retiring Canadians have a defined benefit pension plan, Stark said. Instead, many of us retire with a lump sum of money, 
The amounts vary, but the massive uncertainty of how long the money will last doesn't. We don't know how long we're going to live. We don't know what the interest rates will be. We don't know what the stock markets will do. We don't know what inflation rates are, said Stark. Every one of us, when we retire, is on a unique journey of insecurity. It's not only the retired who need to worry about supporting themselves in the long stretch of their future. Working generations coming up behind them will also shoulder this burden. A metric called the dependency ratio calculates the proportion of the people not in the workforce who are dependent on those of working age. According to Statistics Canada, dependents are aged 0 to 19 and 65 and over. Productives are 20 to 64. The international tool is often cited by government and business and has been a driver of pension reform debates around the world. A low dependency ratio, in Mexico for example, means that there are enough people working to support the dependent population. A high ratio, Japan and South Korea are at the top, indicates more financial stress on workers. Across all OECD countries right now, there are about 30 people 65 and over for every 100 people of working age. In 1950, that ratio was 14 to 100. By 2075, it's predicted to increase to 55 non-working adults for every 100 working. In Canada, we're at the lower end, with dependency expected to hit about 35 by 2025, according to 2015 data from the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. But by 2075, our dependency ratio is projected to be 49.9, one dependent for every two working-age Canadians. That's a big burden for Xs, Ms and Zs. The shrinking percentage of young people means that in the future, the number of workers may be insufficient to finance the pensions of retirees, according to StatsCan. The original meaning of the word retire, from the French retirer, is the act of retreating, falling back, withdrawing into seclusion. Except the retirees I spoke to for this story had go-go schedules that I was worn out just hearing about. Many had taken on dramatically different types of paid employment after leaving their careers. Others had unleashed their inner rebels to become tireless advocates for social justice and climate change. Still others were full-time caregivers. The government pays very little for retired Canadians, said Thomas Klassen, professor at York University's School of Public Policy and Administration. Of the experts I spoke to about retirement, He was the only one of traditional retirement age, so you could say he had a stake in the debate, but I found him reliably dispassionate. He pointed out that retirees and new jobs pay income tax, taxes on their retirement income and government subsidies, HST and GST, and they continue to contribute to the economy by spending money. And yet, we keep hearing that boomers are hoarding all the money and that we will bankrupt younger people, he said. Samir Sinha called the dependency ratio outdated and misguided. The director of geriatrics at Sinai Health and University Health Network in Toronto and a passionate defender of the rights of older Canadians argued that such concepts hold us back. They don't recognize the new reality that at 65 you're likely to have 20 years of good and productive life ahead, he said. The retired are among the country's biggest contributors to childcare and volunteer work, Sinha said. 
Think about the amount governments save for the unpaid care that mostly older people are providing. When we've priced out the unpaid caregiver, we're valuing that in billions and billions of dollars every year. Mieko Ise might be called a silent retiree, someone who quietly leaves the workforce to look after family members in need. For years, she's juggled looking after her own and her husband's parents while working full-time for a Toronto non-profit. I started to have issues with being a caregiver and a full-time employee, said Ise, now in her 60s. I would take vacation days. I would book time off. My boss was not particularly sympathetic. I get it. I don't believe employers should carry the load of your life burden. When it became too overwhelming to have two jobs, Ise quit the one we count as work. Sinha pointed me to a Japanese movie called Plan 75, directed by Chie Hayakawa and released in 2022. In a dystopian future, Japan, which in real life is the demographically oldest OECD country, with a projected dependency ratio of 77 to 100 by 2075, offers $1,000 to the elderly to terminate their own lives and relieve society of the burden of supporting them. The movie, which I watched with my 76-year-old sister, a lawyer who retired at 72, opened with a violent murder off-camera. We heard the blast of gunshot and saw a wheelchair toppled on its side. Cheery beginning, said Laura. It turned out, spoiler, the real Plan 75 was to sell the older generation's ashes for profit to a recycling company. The message of the sweetly weird movie was it's better not to kill our elders. The year before Plan 75 came out, Yusuke Narita, an assistant professor of economics at Yale University, suggested mass suicide and disembowelment of Japan's aged. I feel like the only solution is pretty clear, he said in a 2021 video. Narita later softened his comments in response to questions from the New York Times, saying they were an abstract metaphor. Disembowelment seems pretty visceral to me. But he did win a big audience. He now has more than 600,000 followers on X, formerly Twitter. It's true that the number of people over 65 is growing faster in countries across Asia than anywhere else in the world, at the same time that the size of their younger generations shrink. That means as many as half of Japan's employers report shortages of full-time workers, according to New York Times reporting from earlier this year on aging in Asia. Workers in their 70s and even 80s are stepping up to fill the gap, taking lower-paying jobs as delivery drivers, office cleaners and store clerks, jobs that the younger generations don't want. A quarter of people, 65 and over in Japan, are currently working. The number is the same in Canada and increasing. 24% of Canadians aged 65 to 70 still work in jobs that can be measured, up from 11% in 2000. But the dependency ratio reinforces the belief that those 65 and over are not working. Workers are not counted as workers because they've aged out of the way that we count them. The greys is what the older generation working for Succession's Waystar Royco were called. They were often shot bunched together like an endangered species. They put on compression socks before flying. They plotted for their golden parachutes. Or maybe one last rodeo, 
as Carl, Waystar's CFO, suggested to Frank, former vice chairman, in the final minutes of the hit series. Cut to Tom, the brand-new CEO. Frank, dead. Carl, dead. I really don't need those two old C-U-N-Ts on my shoulder, he said. I thought it was funny as hell. Or I did before my conversation with Lisa Taylor, president of Challenge Factory and co-author of The Talent Revolution, Longevity and the Future of Work. Taylor described ageism as the last socially acceptable form of prejudice. She and her company have set 2030, the year the last of the boomers reach 65, as the target for solving what she described as the far-reaching and urgent issue of this country's age-biased workforce. I was skeptical. Surely there are more important workplace issues to solve, like equity and fairness for people of every race and gender. But after a couple of hours on the phone with Taylor, I came to believe that treating retirement as a default outcome of aging is a workplace bias that will affect the life expectancy, financial dependency, and long-term care costs for a generation retiring earlier than it needs or wants to. Not to mention the impact on the economy. Taylor said if we want to take advantage of our full workforce, in 2022, Canada had nearly a million job vacancies. We need to get to a point where we recognize and call out ageism with the same level of comfort as we do other prejudices in our workplaces. Systemic ageism was meant to have been legislated out of the workplace in 2006, when the Ontario Human Rights Commission won the argument that Canadian workers don't come with a best-before-date stamped on their foreheads. I was a manager at the Globe and Mail at the time, I was 51, and there was a lot of backroom worry about carrying the greys on our backs, and a lot of wisecracks about a superannuated newsroom. But even though 65 hasn't been the legal age for retirement for 17 years, we're constantly looking for ways to push them out the door, said Sinha, with retirement packages, buyouts and pension contributions capped at 65. Taylor's company did a workplace survey of the financial services industry in 2015. It showed that as early as age 49, workers were no longer sent for training or high-performance programs, and future-focused career conversations had slowed down. By the time someone hit 55, the conversation about leaving had been going on for years, except no one was actually saying it. My own conversations with retired Canadians, particularly men in finance, bore this out. Raymond Betts worked most of his life in the frenetic world of institutional equity in New York, Boston and Toronto. Betts asked that his name be changed for this article. When he turned 53, the company hired a younger employee to do the same job as his, without discussing it with him. My desk was originally 36 inches long. They kept moving me to a smaller desk until I ended up sitting at one that was 24 inches long. Betts left that world at 60, taking his skills and work ethic to his second career as a real estate agent. Many people buy into the company's storyline that their best years are behind them the proverbial coasting into retirement. People start to say, Susan's checked out. Susan retired a few years ago. She just hasn't told us, said Taylor. It's attributed to age instead of the company's mismanagement of talent. It's not a big step from there to the accepted myth about older workers. 
they're slower and less productive. They're over the hill, so training them is a cost instead of an investment. Ditto spending any time performance managing them. The stickiest myth is that the long-time employee is too expensive. Get this senior person off the books and hire two younger people to replace them, is how Sinha put it. I've been part of those conversations myself about retirement age people. Likely my bosses also had them about me. But seeing the older worker as a financial burden is a failure of math. Calculations of how much employees cost a company generally include salary and benefits packages, said Taylor. However, they're not having to learn on the job, be trained, or engage the resources of a mentor, let alone the asset of being used as a mentor for younger staff. All of this also saves costs. I have the experience, the relationships, the contacts. I work incredibly hard, said Betts. He still does. He's sold 132 houses in the seven years since he turned 60. I mentioned to Taylor that some of the greys at CBC News seem to struggle with technology during COVID. She stopped me. We give a pass to the 23-year-old with cats walking back and forth on camera, she said, but we snicker when someone over 60 leaves their mic off. I blamed imminent senility, especially when the person on mute was myself. Taylor was unsurprised. Ageism is also self-imposed, she said. Her example was the joke birthday cards we send each other. If you replaced age with any other characteristic, you would never send it, she said. I don't mention the card I just received for my 68th birthday, a New Yorker cartoon called Senior Charades. The old man's word bubble says, Two words. I forgot what they are. It got a big laugh and led to various tips about how to behave at work to appear less old. Don't groan when you stand up, smile in meetings so your face doesn't sag into resting old face, and never rummage for anything, especially glasses. Actually, never say the word rummage. Taylor, who turned 49 this spring and says she's been losing her glasses since she was 22, is a long way from retirement. So are most of the experts I spoke with. I found their dedication moving. They saw it as realistic. Unlike other prejudices, 100% of people will feel age prejudice if we don't solve it, said Taylor. Klassen thinks it will take 20 years for the workplace to reflect the law. Sinha said, We're still in the baby steps of realizing that longevity has implications for how long we work. The workplace has not caught up with the reality of life expectancy, and therefore of career expectancy, he said. Working longer because you're likely to live longer is not everyone's idea of how best to reform retirement. It's an anathema in France to give the most widely reported example. President Emmanuel Macron finally pushed through his pension reforms this past spring, increasing the retirement age from 62 to 64 over a seven-year period. In the often violent street battles that fed headlines everywhere, protesters lost a thumb, an eye, and even, to one officer's club in Paris, a testicle. One of the many slogans from the protests stood out for me. Leave us time to live before we die. But here's a more existential problem with retirement. It could kill you. People who stop working too soon may not have much time to live before they die. 
You hear about the doctors whose entire life and identity was at the hospital, said Sinha. Then they retire, and they're dead a few months later. Similar sudden death stories circulate about a certain type of driven, lifelong journalist, and I always assumed they were apocryphal, or that the victim had been ignoring long-standing health issues. Shortened life expectancy can be predicted by a lack of purpose, Sinha said. He referred to a meta-analysis project from 2010 that combined research from 148 studies involving 308,849 people to show that social connection and purpose increased survival by 50%. A lack of social relationships created the same risk of death as well-established factors such as smoking, drinking and obesity. It was a gobsmacking discovery 13 years ago. A lot of subsequent research has since supported the finding that early retirement can mean less time to enjoy it. The Blue Zone's research into the world's longest-lived people, much publicized by National Geographic and now a Netflix docuseries called Live to 100, Secrets of the Blue Zone, also links longevity with purpose. In the island community of Okinawa, in Japan, where long-lived women thrive on a diet of sweet potatoes, mugwort and goya, everybody can tell you what their sense of purpose is, said Sinha. They have a word for it, ikigai, which means reason for being. Every society uses markers as shorthand for people to understand each other. In some societies, it's your last name or who your parents were, said Taylor. Americans use job titles but they're equally likely to identify each other by the city they grew up in, or what university they went to, or what sports team they're a fan of. In Canada, she said, we almost exclusively use our job titles to define who we are. Sometimes we go so far as to use our previous job to describe ourselves after we retire, in what Taylor calls a backwards-looking identity. Even when you're not working, we reinforce work as a critical piece of our identity. John Davey worked at Dow Chemical in his hometown of Sarnia, Ontario, for 32 years. He left at age 58. I didn't retire. I was retired, Davey, who, now 72, told me. It was part of a company-wide downscaling. He bears no grudges. It took less than a month for him to understand he was not the stay-at-home type. One day I sat in my living room and hoped it would snow so I could go out and shovel. He's worked ever since, most recently as a flower delivery person. I know men who say they're going to regrout the bathroom or whatever, but that's done, and then what, he said. Don O'Connor put the perils of not having purpose more starkly. He was in wealth management and real estate at TD Bank in Toronto for 36 years, so his financial literacy was better than the average Canadian's. COVID made him realize how much he hated the three-hour commute and so he retired last year at 62. Now, he works part-time at a funeral home in Burlington and loves everything about it. Two-minute drive, flexible hours, every day is different, and puts up with the mild astonishment of his friends about his new job because, as he told me on our call, if you don't do anything, you're on the express route to death. Here's a bleak prospect for many retiring Canadians. They will leave or be pushed out of the workforce too soon and without enough money. They are financially prepared for the short and medium haul of life after work, but not the long one. 
they will go on to live too long in too poor health. Increased life expectancy has also increased the number of years people spend being sick, with a dwindling ability to support themselves or live independently. Ultimately, they'll become wards of the state, housed in long-term care at great cost to the government and society. Sinha said, this is where our destitute end up, in these government-run facilities. According to a 2019 report by the National Institute on Aging at Toronto Metropolitan University, long-term care costs are expected to triple from $22 billion to $71 billion by 2050. It will be the equivalent of the modern-day Victorian poorhouse for our old, Sinha said. We know this for a fact. The human brain is not equipped to make long-term decisions, said Bonnie Jean MacDonald, Director of Financial Security Research at the National Institute on Aging. The human brain is very optimistic, which is great, but it can't process the bad things that will happen in the future. Decisions made now are not just for yourself in five years, but for you in 30 years, and that's going to be a much more vulnerable person than you are right now, health-wise. The National Institute on Aging report says that by 2050, care in one's own home will cost up to $25,000 a month. Care in a retirement home or residence could be as much as $10,000 a month. Those options will be unaffordable for most Canadians. Meanwhile, the number of people caring for family members at home will decrease sharply. Between now and 2050, Canada is expected to have 30% fewer voluntary caregivers, according to Sinha. Paid healthcare workers will not fill the gap. Canada's universal healthcare system was never designed to cover the provisions of long-term care services, including home and community care nursing, Sinha said. Long-term care insurance, LTCI, is now mandatory in Germany, South Korea and Japan. Here in Canada, home-based care doesn't even cover prescription medications. According to that 2019 Canadian Financial Capability Survey, a third of Canadians also worry they won't be able to afford health care costs as they age, and rightly so. We spend the majority of our life savings paying for care in the last 10 years of our life, said Klein, the financial manager who put my life expectancy at 94, which is sounding less and less like good news. If we could create a different kind of retirement in Canada, a more inclusive, more creative and flexible concept of work, and one that erased the grim picture of poor houses for the old, where would we start? After talking to dozens of experts and retired Canadians, three ideas, or ideals, formed my personal retirement manifesto. The first would be to make measures against ageism part of every company's fair employment practice. Imagine a legacy career path that sees Canadians move from a 40- to a 60-year work life, without censure or ridicule for being too old to work. I think of what Taylor said. People change jobs all the time. But as we get older, we think we must continue doing exactly what we're doing now or fall off a cliff. These are extreme alternatives. The more high-powered the job and the higher in pay scale, the more we believe there is nowhere for workers to go but out. But many older workers prefer to forego the intensity of management responsibilities, higher salaries and relentless climbing, 
and returned to the craft work they excelled at in the beginning of their careers, even for a lot less money. Go ahead and ask them. As my own career wound down, I often thought, but did not say, that I wanted to go back to writing and editing to revive my love of words that had taken me all the way to senior news director at the CBC, where I wasn't allowed anywhere near copy. The second tenet of my manifesto is phased retirement. This one took me a while to get to, even though every expert and most of the retirees I spoke to were for it. I asked fellow CBC leader Greg Riome, 68, who retired from running World News at CBC News a few months before I left myself, what he'd have said if I'd asked him to stay on a couple of days a week for the next two years, or if we'd open that option to everybody. A minefield, Riom said, and complicated to manage. Right, I agreed. Which is exactly the problem. Even if bosses like us believe in and desire phased retirement, taking on the labour-intensive job of juggling the options do you make it mandatory to offer but voluntary to accept, and coordinating the schedules of part-time staff would keep managers from getting on side. We need to get them on side, though, because think of the benefits to the worker who wants to keep contributing, to the employer who keeps getting returns on their experience and work ethic, and to the Canadian economy in need of workers. Figure that out, and we move toward retirement becoming an adaptive and gradual transition, rather than an on-off switch. Indeed, Klassen's research showed a strong preference among older workers to gradually ease out of full-time employment, working fewer days over a period of several years. His definition of retirement is a transition from working mostly full-time to not working mostly full-time. Finally, I propose we find new words to describe both retirement and retirees. A line from a 2014 Atlantic story on American retirement puts the lie to the core idea of traditional retirement. I don't know if it's ever going to be realistic that everyone saves enough to spend the last third of their life on vacation, New York economist and author Alison Schrager was quoted as saying. When I called her recently to ask if she still stood by this idea, her answer was a firm yes. That vision of retirement, the one my father enjoyed and the one I had teed up for myself? None of it makes any sense anymore. Media, banks and self-help books have lately been bandying around the term the new retirement. But we should really be talking about the end of retirement. Instead of talking about the retired, we should be talking about the unretired. Not the undead, not yet, but maybe as indomitable. Except that's not right either. If our goal is to have Canadians work for as long as they're excited and willing and able and empowered to do so, how about if we just call them workers? Because the essential zeitgeist of the retiree in 2023 is to keep working, however that looks. Raymond Betts, even as he moves from being goal-oriented to soul-oriented, told me he will never retire. My father worked until he was 97 and died four months later at 98, he said. Betts wasn't sure he'd see the point in going on without work. Work gives me a reason to call someone, he said. I have a mission. I have a reason to talk to people. Mieko Ise believes retirement is a time to take risks in a way that younger people who need to keep their jobs can't. Speak out, she said. 
I want to be reinvigorated, not retired. Vicky Obedkoff, who retired in Saskatoon at 71, after 40 years as a minister with the United Church of Canada, fights for the same causes she's always supported climate change, human rights, and social justice. She quoted Alice Walker, Activism is my rent for living on the planet. I think about her often, said Obidkov. I can't see a time in the future when I will let this work go. Marjorie Bocage, a 76-year-old artist and elder who lives in Duck Lake, Saskatchewan, was baffled by the whole idea of retirement. I don't know any of those retired people, she said. Elders don't retire. Neither do artists. For elders, this time of life is the busiest. You have to be there for your community. The way I think about my own retirement has changed significantly since I started working on this article. I am part of a generation that will live the longest in history and also work the longest if the big thinkers and the workers themselves succeed in moving Canadians from a 40-year career path to a 60-year one. It's new terrain, and the best way through is to be alert, adaptable, open to failure, and ready to act fast on success. I don't see retiring when I did as a failure. I had my second career as a writer I wanted to focus on, and that grandson I'm gaga to spend time with. But I wonder why I didn't have the conversation about a staged departure into a different kind of role, or why no one else had it with me. I'm nearly alert to dinner table banter that turns ageist. It is without exception driven by people my age. It's time for the old farts to make way for the next generation, said one retired financial industry executive at a recent dinner party when the conversation turned to the Globe and Mail's leadership. Philip Crawley, publisher, announced his retirement a month later at 78. Hold on, I said, and then held forth on what I've learned about age prejudice. It may have been obnoxious. I will probably keep doing it. Speak out, inner rebel. For now, I'm following Benjamin Klein's simple financial advice. More input, less output. Those are the only two things we can control, he said. Which could mean getting a job, and not in management or journalism, but something completely different. I've been an admirer of people who dedicate their retirement to volunteer work, but felt pity when I saw someone my own age shelving groceries or working as a greeter. Now I think, long life headed your way, my friend. I've stopped backwards identifying myself by the work I used to do after Lisa Taylor asked me to please be bold and to introduce yourself as you are now. In my case, that's as a writer. Now and then I even try to picture my future self, 30 years from now. But Bonnie Jean MacDonald is right. It's unfathomable. I accept that older Catherine will be more fragile. Hopefully not in the poorhouse, but perhaps a modest room or two, with a few things to remind me of the people I love. And also with the people I love. Likely I won't be working. We can but hope. That was an article titled The End of Retirement by Catherine Bradbury. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson. Audio engineering by Jacob Shemansky. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Roger Ashby. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review and subscribe for more. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.